at a certain point when the group has reached a kind of maximal mode of conflict, the possibility of resolution comes from identifying a single victim who the entire group can converge around um, killing or expelling. All right, what's up, everybody? Justin Murphy here. This is the Other Life Podcast. This week, I am talking with Jeff Schullenberger. Jeff is an interesting dude. I actually met him first through the Indie Thinkers community, our little private community for what I call indie thinkers or independent intellectuals, basically all the people out there just like me who have increasingly decided to go off the plantation of academia and instead pursue their long-term intellectual work on the internet instead. And Jeff is a actually a really great example of this. He's a lecturer at NYU and he's pursued a, a pretty traditional academic path. He's published widely in peer-reviewed journals and he's been teaching at NYU for quite a while, but he sees that, you know, there's this really exciting new opportunity to really get active with blogging and podcasting and really developing one's best work openly and on the internet in one's own creative way. And he's been doing a great job. So he's built this little brand called Outsider Theory. He's got a blog and a newsletter and a podcast. If you go to outsidertheory.com, go check out Jeff. And yeah, he's been writing a lot recently about mostly, I would say, the intersection of 20th century continental thinkers with the contemporary internet culture. So he's been writing about Marcuse and Gerard and Foucault, really, really interesting stuff. So I'm really excited to talk with Jeff this week. And the other reason that I'm talking with Jeff is because he and I are together launching a course on Rene Girard. So he's doing all the teaching. I'm just kind of helping him set it up and run it and organize it all. So if you go actually to girardcourse.com, you can check out some more information about that. We actually made a free study guide. So if you're interested in learning more about Rene Girard, maybe you've always wanted to read Rene Girard, but you never really got around to it, or you're not sure where to start. Or maybe even if you have read some Girard, but you're curious, you know, are there other works that you really should be paying attention to that you maybe haven't read yet? I had Jeff make a curated sequence of readings that everyone should read if you're interested in really understanding the work of Girard. So it's actually structured as a kind of eight week program or a seven week program around there. So uh, yeah, it's, it'll give you a logical sequence of some of the key readings to really cover the entire expanse of Rene Girard's key ideas. So just go and grab that at girardcourse.com, just like it sounds. Yeah, so I'll send you more information about the course as it's ready. And that's all for now. I just wanna get right into this conversation. It's gonna be all about Rene Girard. We're gonna basically go over all of the content that Jeff is planning for the course. And he's gonna give you a kind of rundown of each of the key themes of each week and just give you a kind of conversational summary. So this should be one of the best single stop introductory listens to the entire, you know, set of key ideas associated with Rene Girard. So I hope you enjoy it. All right. On to the podcast. All right. So the very first week of the Girard course is an introduction to mimetic theory. So I thought the most natural place to start would just be Jeff, could you Give us your kind of basic layman's spiel about the the essence of Girardian theory, the essence of mimetic theory. Someone walks up to you at a bus stop and asks you, what's this Rene Girard guy all about? What do you tell him? Yeah, so I think one kind of nice thing about Girard as compared to some of his other sort of French theory contemporaries is he's actually relatively easy to explain in this way. So the the fundamental notion is mimesis or imitation. And, you know, he wasn't the first to um, center this phenomenon in how he understood human relations and human psychology, but um, he was the one who kind of took it the furthest. And that was because he focused not just on imitation in the realm of behavior, that in other words, it's obvious to anybody that people like other animals to some extent learn by observing and imitating but rather that he introduced it to the level of desire, right? So it's not just a matter of what people do, but of what they want. And the basic observation is that people want because other people want, um, and people want specific things because other people um, already want them. And so this relatively simple and straightforward seeming observation is really the, the crux of the entire matter. Um, because what it posits is that this is the fundamental source of conflict. 
And um, the reason for that is relatively straightforward. Um, he posits this idea of acquisitive mimesis as a kind of basic, maybe kind of zero degree mode of mimesis, which is simply someone else has or seeks to obtain some thing in the world. And then others observe that and um, their mimetic desire, the, the desire that is um, a secondary response to the, the first person's desire um, is triggered. And then inevitably those two um, will come into conflict in some form. Now, um, you know, th there are some complications to this relatively simple scenario, which is, well, this presumably if we're talking about resources that are relatively um, easy to obtain, either because they're just part of the natural world or because they are, um, you know, in mass, in mass consumer societies, you know, they're relatively cheap, um, then that's, you know, maybe not such a problem because, you know, if I see you wearing a cool outfit and I want that outfit as typically happens, then, um, you know, I can just go buy that as well. Right. But then again, most of us are familiar from having been teenagers with the fact that that doesn't necessarily put an end to the, the problem, right? Because if, um, if I see you wearing a cool outfit, then I go out and buy the same outfit as people typically do. Um, it might seem, okay, well, we both got the outfit, so we're fine. But actually, um, things can get a bit more difficult, right? Because once you who had the outfit first see me wearing it, you, you might be angry at me right, for appropriating something that I took to belong to me and to make me unique, right? So that's kind of a simple example of this acquisitive mimesis. Right. Now, the problem is that it's infinite, essentially. There, there could yeah. be no limit to the escalation of this competition, and that's why it leads to violence in the long yeah. run. Right. And then, you know, then take it to the level of, non, of, of, not, of, of actually scarce things, like, say, you're in love with a person, and then I, observing that, also fall in love with the same person. And then we have this situation of what Girard calls triangular desire, right, which he posits as central to, in his, in his earliest book, to, um, you know, how love is, is experienced and, and also how it's represented in literature. So, obviously, in this case, where you have a conflict over your um, romantic attachment to the same person, you know, that's where you end up. And you can think back to hundreds of years ago in Europe when you had the whole phenomenon of the duel, right? Well, why do people get into duels? Well, because they're both um, courting the same lady. And um, the only way to resolve it is for them to go out and have it out um, in the form of a duel. So these are, you know, again, the, the relatively simple, um, scenarios that are sort of the the basic building blocks of this um, of this theory but then as you said the the what extends from there is a, a larger theory of how this can cascade infinitely into violence that um, consumes potentially entire societies now here you can think of like the blood feud as a um, as a you know, social phenomenon that's that can be widely observed. Um, you can think of something like Romeo and Juliet, right, um, as as something that illustrates the potential for this kind of this kind of um, conflict to really consume um, entire groups of people in a way that will potentially lead to all of them being. Um, killed off eventually, right? And then the, the, pro the basic problem that societies face, um, if, if violence is also something that um, spreads mimetically, is how to resolve that, right? So, um, so social institutions in this theory are, originate from the need to solve this problem. Okay, so right, we're gonna unpack some of that more uh, in, in just a minute. One thing I noticed about the first week is that one of the required readings is this Gerard article on innovation and repetition. And I wonder if we could pause on that for a moment because this is, you know, a lot of people know of Gerard's kind of more famous ideas, but 
you know, he has a, a rich body of work and there, there's a lot of nuance. And I think one, this is probably a lesser known article, but it is really quite interesting. Uh, Gerard has this kind of story about the difference between innovation and imitation. Do you want to maybe go into that for a minute and, and maybe give people a sense of what's important or interesting about that? So this article is particularly interesting in relation to the topic of Girard's somewhat subtle, but I'd say increasingly evident influence within Silicon Valley, which, you know, he actually spent his later career at Stanford, but he never really wrote much about technology or capitalism. Even this essay is one of the, one of the few things he wrote that touches on many themes that are, you know, heavily discussed in those kind of contexts. And so it's a, you know, it's partly an essay that's a kind of um, conceptual history and almost etymological history of this term innovation. And, you know, he, um, he goes into the way that it's a term that originally was used with extremely negative valences. So in other words, it was regarded as highly, as, as highly suspicious if you were an innovator, right? Um, now, the reason for this was if you have societies that are founded on some kind of religious orthodoxy, um, innovation is tantamount to heresy or something like that. And so in the early versions of um, how this term is used in English, it's almost entirely used to describe people who are considered dangerous, right? And so part of what the essay is thinking about is um, how did we flip in our values so completely that innovation is now something that's regarded as highly valuable and, and is highly um, sort of uh, encouraged right, by the society from something that was discouraged and regarded as dangerous. So this, this really has to do with the way that um, modern societies came to value individualism and came to value the idea of, of not being imitative right, of, of being, um, you know, anti-mimetic in some way. But the, the sort of twist there, and we can get into this a little bit later with um, the example of, of his work on 19th century fiction, is that this, um, this drive to differentiate yourself, to um, make yourself into a full individual um, who is not imitatively dependent on others, Girard argues is often a kind of disguise for imitation, right? That, that, you know, innovation can actually conceal imitation, which um, makes it a much more complicated phenomenon than, um, than we might imagine. Yeah, you know, I think there's a really funny example of this, which is everyone now likes to copy uh, Peter Thiel's, you know, famous question about you know, what is your most contrarian opinion? So the, it's it's hilarious now because basically now anyone in tech circles has some kind of like stock contrarian opinion. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and uh, everyone is prepared to basically imitate each other in being more contrarian. So mm -hmm. it's, 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 it's a hilarious example of, of what he's talking about that in, in today's world, kind of radical anti-conformism and extreme in, individualist kind of creativity is its own kind of... Uh, mimetic convergence and imitation exactly yeah and I, I mean i think teal you know teal completely would have foreseen that and um you know <laughs> he wouldn't be surprised by it at all but um but i think yeah it's it, it, so i i thought that would be a good essay to discuss just because it you know even though he's not even directly talking about silicon valley per se it just it's it's one of the texts he wrote the most speaks to that kind of angle of his influence and and why he's of interest today but also as you're bringing up allows for some interesting kind of critiques of the fetishization of innovation in that culture right excellent so in week two of the course you go into rivalry resentment and conversion and one of the main readings there is this is this essay on triangular desire. And you mentioned that a minute ago, but maybe could you just break down what is this triangle that Gerard has in mind? Yeah, so generally it's a romantic triangle. So it's it's a literary, you know, it's it's a literary phenomenon as he originally analyzes it, right? If you just look through um I mean Shakespeare would be a place where you could find many of these, but also and he wrote a book about Shakespeare. But also, um, you know, the 19th century novel more broadly 
what you tend to have are these triangular relationships, typically but not always, two men vying for the love of the same woman, right? So, you know, the, the question, and it goes back to this, this basic framework I brought up before, but um, what Girard argues is that these 19th century novels um, by writers like um, Stendhal, Flaubert, and, um, and then crucially Proust, you know, who's early 20th century, I think is maybe the richest and fullest um, version of this. Um, as somebody who really, Girard argues that, you know, he did, none of his insights were original to himself, that he simply um, explained the insights of these novelists, right? And so, you know, what you see in a writer like Proust is these characters behaving in seemingly bizarre and irrational ways um, in terms of their, um, the, you know, their romantic obsessions with others, right? And the way that he presents it is that you can generally reduce it to these triangular structures, right? Where, where any desire is mediated through another's desire, right? So anytime I, a literary character, am in love with a woman, um, that relationship is always is never direct, right? It's always mediated through someone else who is my rival, and so this um, this structure is pervasive. And this goes back to this idea that individualism um, can conceal imitation, because what what he finds is in nineteenth century literature you have this. Um, heavy influence of romanticism, where basically, you know, th there's this immense emphasis on the autonomous individual, right? The, the kind of passionate, um, highly individualistic figure, um, you know, who's, uh, you know, you can think back to something like the sorrows of young Werther, right? Um, you know, who's like, so, so consumed by passion for you know, for yeah, a woman. it's like the emo goth mm -hmm. poet kid. Yeah, and right, and there, you know, there's this emphasis on their pure individuality and standing apart from the crowd, right? That the romantic, you think of the Caspar David Friedrich painting, right, of the the wanderer above the fog, right? This this figure of the lone individual. So that you know, so the point of this whole um, theory is kind of to. Um, debunk the romantic, what he calls the romantic lie in the original title of the the book he wrote on this is Mensonge Romantique, which, you know, is the, I mean, it was translated as deceit, desire in the novel, but the, the basic target of it is this romantic lie, which he argues is still pervasive in our culture, as we saw with the imitation, with the innovation example. And um, yeah, pretty much the idea is that you can trace this triangular structure throughout um, all of these literary representations of desire. And you can use it on one hand to understand these seemingly bizarre and perverse behaviors that you see particularly in somewhat later writers like Dostoevsky and Proust. And that you can also um, use it to kind of expose and debunk this. And he kind of later said that he understood this as a, a sort of debunking project, directly targeting this kind of persistent myth of individual, of sort of romantic individualism. All right, excellent. So in week three, you go over the founding murder, the scapegoat and sacrifice. So maybe we could now speak a little bit more to how desire concretely gets translated into violence. Do you want to unpack that a little bit? So I, I, this goes a little bit into um, particularly what he writes about in Things Hidden, but the, the basic premise here is that, uh, you know, it, there's a speculative sort of evolutionary theory here, right? Which is that um, if, you, if you look at, um, you know, social, sort of social animals like you know, our sort of closest primate relatives. When they have conflicts, those conflicts, and this goes down to, you know, other other types of animals as well. Those conflicts tend to be resolved through dominance hierarchies. So in other words, basically imagine you have two chimps or two bulls or whatever facing off, 
right? Um, over, you know, out of some kind of rivalry. Eventually, one of them simply um, concedes defeat, right? And so the so the so the um, the conflict is resolved at the point at which the weaker party concedes defeat, right? Often you don't even need violence at all. It can be as much as showing your chest exactly. to be bigger than the other one, and the other one will just back down. Yeah. So the the basic theory is because humans have you know, and w- and we know that humans are have a more strongly developed mimetic or imitative capacity than other animals. And so the observation here is that if this imitation, as I brought up before, pertains not simply to um, behavior but to desire, then this kind of moment of violent escalation um, will not necessarily be resolved by this kind of dominance hierarchy. That in other words, if the mimetic impulse is so strong that... And here you can think about a sort of um, important background story that Girard was influenced by, but also differentiates himself from, it was Hegel's master-slave dialectic, right? Where similarly you have this idea of these two, this sort of fight to the death between these two figures, but where Hegel resolves it with one of them simply backs down and then becomes the slave, becomes the slave of the other, right? Girard imagines an escalation that would never... Um, end in this way, and also, and then this is the other important part. You know, for Hegel again, it's it's also speculative, but it's um, the model of it is one individual against the other. Whereas Girard's also because of the imitative capacities, it's a necessity that others will be drawn in, right? That in other words, others will be drawn into the conflict because they will Im- they will see these people in conflict and they will imitate them as well, right? And so you can think about mob dynamics and, you know, what we know about how riots function and things like that, right? That this is something we can observe in the world. So basically the idea here is that um, because mimesis generates rivalry and conflict, and because there's no sort of um, obvious stopping point for it, right? And here we might think, again, you know, even if one of them manages to kill the other off, well, think about blood feuds, right? Well, then that simply leads to this kind of tit-for-tat escalation of the, of the conflict between, you know, those loyal to different parties in the conflict. So basically the idea here is we have the potential for the society to be completely consumed by this sort of, um, this sort of conflict. And then the question is what happens? Um, or what what allows for that resolution to occur, if not this sort of dominance hierarchy mode where where one person or one side just backs down. So this is where the um, the next sort of stage of the theory develops, which is that um, and and the argument here, which which I would argue, you know, we can we can actually find like versions of um, today. Is that at a certain point when the group has reached a kind of maximal mode of conflict, the possibility of resolution comes from um, identifying a single victim who the entire group can converge around um, killing or expelling, right? So again, this is. Um, you know, it's it's a sort of speculative anthropology, right? Because the idea is that in these kind of early human groups, sort of pre-cultural human groups, you had this phenomenon playing itself out over and over again. And that um, this mechanism by which when the group seemed to be reaching a breaking point of conflict, um, a partic- if a particular individual could be singled out and the group could kind of coalesce around channeling their violence towards this single individual and expelling that individual, whether killing or just, you know, kind of casting them out into the desert or whatever, um, that that could allow for the group to achieve reconciliation again. So this is basically the the model that he outlines in um, first really in Violence and the Sacred and then further in Things Hidden and The Scapegoat. All right, excellent. 
Could you say a brief word? I think a lot of people are curious about this. How exactly does the scapegoat get selected? Like why is a certain individual more likely to become the scapegoat than another? Yeah, so I mean, this is kind of a, this this leads us into something else, which is the way that Girard analyzed myth. Right. So that's perfect. This is this is the this is the topic for week four in the course. So that that's a great segue. So go ahead. Yeah. So you know, one thing he observed is that um, if you look through myth, you will find there are these figures who are who are often and this you know gets into the next sort of phase of this, but who are often gods or heroes of some sort, but who have some, who are identified with some flaw, right? So think about Oedipus, um, right? Who basically walks with a limp, um, or you have these other figures who often have, who often seem to be crippled or um, have some sort of, um, you know, they're, they're missing one eye or um, they're, you know, like the Cyclops, um, they're, they're in some way exceptional, right? They have some asymmetry or some thing that um, makes them stand out. So it's interesting. I mean, here's like a here's a weird example of this um, of this coming up. Uh, so if people are familiar with the show, I was talking to somebody about this, so it's on my mind. But um, it's been a while since I've seen it. But the show Downton Abbey. So one of the weird, one of the weirdest dynamics in that show in the first couple seasons is you have this one figure who's like one of the servants and he's basically, he walks with a limp, right? He's like somewhat crippled. Um, and he's the footman of the sort of Lord of the manor or whatever. And he's completely scapegoated by all the other servants, right? They, they all like have it in for him. They all, um, kind of, you know, um, carry out pranks against him and just try to make his life really hard, right? And he's he's this kind of martyr figure, right? Who's just um, constantly um, being persecuted and harassed by all these other people. And interestingly, he has a limp, right? So, and that, that seems to be the main thing that sets him apart, right? There's, there's no other reason that they hate him other than this, but it seems to just mark him as this figure who who can be... Um, treated horribly, right, and and just um, constantly scapegoated. So this is exactly what Girard observes in myth, right? That there are these figures who often have some kind of flaw or some kind of um, some kind of you know, as we would say today, disability, right? And that, I mean, and this is where we get a little bit into the the way that scapegoating is um, channeled into these mythical representations, which takes us for a bit of a loop because I have to explain why the scapegoat can become a god or a hero, right? Because go for it, man. We got time. Because presumably the scapegoat is the is the the sort of regarded as the enemy, of, and this this is important, right? The scapegoat has to be treated as guilty of the society's um, sins or misdoings, right? And so this is what. Um, you know, when you have the society consumed by conflict, it, and then it is able to coalesce around the um, collective victimization of this one individual. So, the, you know, the way this is represented in the, the scapegoat ritual in the Bible from which the um, terminology comes is, uh, I mean, it's actually a goat. It's not a not a human, but, you know, the point is that the sins of the society are sort of um, attached to it, and then it's sent out into the desert. So it's, it's, um, it, it has to kind of take upon itself all of the um, negative attributes that are sort of causing the conflicts in the society. So the scapegoat is... Uh, you know, is has to be villainized, right? Has to be treated as the sort of enemy um, who needs to be expelled for the society to regain equilibrium. Thinking of Oedipus again, right? What happens in the Oedipus myth? Well, um, this is the Thebes is um, consumed by plague, right? The, um, and uh, what has to happen? Well, somebody is responsible for the, the sort of sins or misdoings that have brought down this plague upon the society, right? 
So Oedipus is then found responsible. He's not killed, but he's expelled. Um, and this is what lifts the plague from Thebes, right? So this is one version of this myth. So we have these figures in like Greek mythology and elsewhere who are sort of ambivalent, right? They're both a kind of hero, but they're also, right? I mean, Oedipus, um, you know, defeats the Sphinx. So on one hand, he's, he himself lifts a curse from Thebes, but then he also brings the curse upon it, right? So he's this ambivalent figure who serves both functions. So the explanation of this is that the, um, that the scapegoat, once the scapegoat has been expelled and allowed for this, and the, the, the expulsion has allowed for the society to coalesce anew, this is what um, allows for the scapegoat to be kind of resignified as a hero or a god, right? Because, because the scapegoat has had this effect on the group of, of bringing peace, suddenly the scapegoat can become kind of deified um, and, and can be seen as the, you know, has gone from being seen as the bringer of, of, um, of this kind of crisis to being that which has lifted the crisis, right? So it has to have this dual function. And so going back to your original question of how the scapegoat is selected, I mean, again, Girard's evidence for this is that the scapegoat has to be this figure that stands out in some way, right? And so he, you know, in his analyses of myth, he systematically shows this example of the cripple, right? Or the the one who limps um, as being a sort of pervasive figure throughout myth. And so he, um, you know, I, I think that's, you know, it's, it's not um, comprehensive, but it's a really good example because... It's just a figure who stands out in a pronounced way and who therefore can kind of attract the attention and the sort of opprobrium of the entire group because of that. Okay, fascinating. So it sounds like, as you said, the the individual who gets scapegoated has some kind of peculiar trait that makes them stand out. But I, I'm sensing also that there must be some kind of stochastic component also, like a, a kind of randomness involved, because presumably at any given time, there's a few different candidates who stick out. But the the swarm or the mob the mob convergence uh, kind of will pick one with with some element of randomness I, I would guess. Yeah, I think that's true, and I mean we can see this on social media, right? Just like who who gets ch targeted for cancellation or for some kind of I mean you know it's I mean and you know you've you've written about this, but like you, you're sending some kind of signal that makes you stand out, right? Um, or you're you're stumbling in effect, right? You're you're you know, similar to the the cripple, like you're stumbling, right? You're you're often you're like trying to articulate something. Um, often the people who are who are mobbed in some way, they're trying to articulate something, but they're they stumble, right? And and so they and that's what that's what suddenly um, attracts all of this attention and sort of galvanizes the collective in this negative form around them. And that's actually technically significant in Girard because this idea of scandal, that the very term scandal yes. has a kind of etymological root with stumbling. Yeah. It means on, on an etymological level, on some level, uh, to, to stumble, like a scandal is a kind of stumbling. And so that's interesting that the, the person who gets it selected to be the scapegoat is themselves in some way kind of stumbling. And then the, 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 the society or the mob will in a way, kind of stumble over them as well. Like if, if you're getting scandalized by someone, you're kind of stumbling on them in a way. Right, yeah. It seems like, again, I, I really think that um, that Downton Abbey example is really interesting because like, you know, you observe this. I actually like you that You observe show. this guy, you know, I, I'm, I can't remember his name actually because um, it's been so long since I've seen it, but it's like you observe him stumbling, right? And then you sort of stumble along with him, right? It, it, it creates this kind of painful sensation just to observe him in this, this kind of awkward state. And then it also produces this um, welling up of just like hatred and contempt from the other people, from the other servants, right? Um, right, fascinating. Yeah. yeah, so, okay, so week five of the course then moves on to the scandal of Christianity. And I think that this is one of the most underestimated aspects of Rene Girard in that I think a lot of people know that he's, he, you know, he's sympathetic to Christianity, but 
I've been re- I've been reading Gerard actually for the first time in the past few months um, because for whatever reason I guess I never I never encountered Gerard in all of my grad school and all of, of of my time doing academic research. I think in the social sciences he just is not very hot at least at the moment in the past ten years or so. I think it's it's probably in the humanities that he's more hot, but. And, and the, I guess the whole kind of like teal inspired kind of wave of Gerard came a bit after when, when, I, when I was kind of in the, the heydays of, of, of reading everything. And so this is actually my first time reading Gerard in the past few months. I've been reading just because we're, you know, launching this course. So I figured I'd, I'd get a few books and, and get into it. And the thing that jumps out to me the most that's most interesting is I did not realize how really Christian he is. It's not just like Christian sympathetic. His entire philosophy, I mean, you could disagree if you want. I'd be curious what you think. But in my in my reading so far, he's very, very Christian. It's like Christian through and through. Very like It's basically a, 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 a philosophical and anthropological vindication of, of the Christian faith, really. Um, so do you agree with that, or am I overstating it? Yeah, I mean, I think he pretty much said that explicitly about it. I mean, and said, in fact, that all of his work was that now— if you, I think if you read um, his first two books, it was not, it was not particularly obvious to people. I mean, violence on the sacred essentially doesn't discuss, which is where he first outlines the the scapegoat theory and his understanding of sacrifice as having this kind of um, socially unifying effect. Um, basically, does not discuss Christianity at all. Right, it's entirely focused on the sort of pre-Christian pagan world. And then Deceit, Desire in the Novel is a, um, you know, it. I, I don't think when people read it, they took it as a sort of Christian book, although it can be read that way. Um, because what he observes is that in all of these novels, and, you know, even in the personal lives of certain novelists like Dostoevsky, you have this conversion, right? And so he identifies conversion as... Um, the process by which you realize that these desires that you thought were yours and made you an individual, right, were actually um, this kind of triangulated imitation of, of, some, of some other person who you set up as a kind of idol, right? Um, and so his first kind of um, introduction of a Christian concept, of sort of explicitly Christian concept, was this idea of conversion, right? That... And, you know, I think there's a sort of, um, even though Deceit Desire in the novel was sort of received favorably by like Marxist literary critics at the time because of the way that it um, represented kind of uh, capitalist societies in the 19th century as as bringing about this kind of shift in the nature of desire. But he, um, you know, it, it can be read as a relatively kind of conservative Christian book, because in part what he's saying is that, basically what he's saying in that book is that if you, when you enter into a secular egalitarian society, as people did in the 19th century, um, you don't actually get rid of God. Instead, you simply um, make other people into your God, right? So this is what he calls deviated transcendence. Right, so transcendence would be simply the relationship between you and a sort of genuinely higher power, right? Deviated transcendence would be where I, in my tacit relationship to some human model, right, who may be somebody who I ostensibly hate, right, and regard as a as a rival or enemy, um, that I turn that person into a kind of transcendent figure, right? Um, because I, I basically surrender all of my desire to them and allow them to determine it, right? So so this idea of conversion is important because um, it it's where you realize that your desires are determined through this process of deviated transcendence where you've made other people into your God, right? And then you, um, you're, you know, it's a conversion... I mean, it's a, it can be a conversion in a sort of literal Christian sense, right? Of of returning to full transcendence rather than deviated transcendence. Um, I think you know someone like Proust he sees as a as a, a novelist who underwent a kind of novelistic conversion in that he was able to understand the nature of this kind of deviated mode of desire. Um, 
but you know, not necessarily in an explicitly Christian sense. So, I, you know, that's just the first book, right? So if we get into the later work, um, it really becomes far more explicit, and it's really things hidden since the foundation of the world, right? Which is um, a quotation from from Saint Paul. And what is it? What are the things hidden since the foundation of the world? Well, basically, the idea here is that um, you have this whole system of sacrificial scapegoating that basically emerges alongside humanity itself, right? That, that humanity, as it comes into its sort of, um, you know, fully human state, is basically um, reliant on these mechanisms of sacrifice and scapegoating in order to maintain some kind of social coalescence. And um, basically, the idea is that Christianity, I mean, initially Judaism, right, in its, um, in, you know, in its persistent um, kind of sympathy for the victim, that, you know, the, the, the Jewish, um, you know, Hebrew, Hebrew Bible is um, marked by this sense that, you know, God is on the side of the outcast of the figure who's, um, who's kind of victimized and, um, and um, cast out by society, right? And you have all these various figures who, are, who represent that, right? That, that God is repeatedly shown to be on the side of the one who is victimized and cast out. Gerard talks a lot about the story of Joseph um, as an example of this, where you have, um, you know, Joseph essentially scapegoated by his brothers, right, and sort of left to die. He's, you know, he eventually rises up again um, in Egypt. You know, so he compares the story of Joseph to the story of Oedipus, right, where Oedipus is shown to be um, guilty, right, in the myth, whereas Joseph is repeatedly victimized, but also shown to be innocent, right? He, he never um, does anything to deserve his victimization. So already, you know, he reads basically the Hebrew Bible as a sustained critique of these kinds of sacrificial scapegoating type practices, where it, it shows that the victim is, is innocent, right, is not actually guilty of the, the um, crimes they are charged with. Um, and then once you get to, you know, the New Testament, the idea is essentially that the passion of Christ is a kind of culmination of this process of sort of debunking where the scapegoat mechanism is revealed, right? The, the way that it functions is revealed and that you have all of these similarities, which, you know, people like, um, J.G. Frazier going back to the 19th century have been observing, you know, in sort of anthropology and the study of myth, right? That the really the, the Christian passion resembles various myths from all sorts of cultures, right? And that you have this kind of hero god figure who's um, who's killed, right, and then who resurrects. So this is not, you know, just this simple fact or that this basic set of narrative elements is not unique to Christianity. What's unique to it is that um, that Christ is represented as innocent, right? And that um, the, the, the violence of the society is entirely attributed to um, his victimizers, right? Um, and so the idea is essentially, yes, that you have this whole process of... Um, the history of human society, which is founded on this mechanism, right, which is periodically used in order to reunite um, groups that are threatened with dissolution. And then with, and, you know, there is some complexity, particularly in some of his later thoughts that, you know, he, he sort of acknowledges that some of the, uh, that the other sort of axial age religions, um, you know, had certain insights in common with Judaism and then Christianity. But, you know, basically his argument for the sort of uniqueness of Christianity is that it systematically um, exposes and debunks this process by which um, scapegoats are 
essentially turned into gods in order to um, to reunify social groups. Excellent, excellent. That was a fantastic rehearsal of of Gerard on Christianity. So in week six, you go into basically contrasting Gerard with Nietzsche and Freud. And maybe one interesting way to open up this discussion is based on what you were just saying, there, there's a quite natural question one might have, which is that, of course, Christianity looms large in Nietzsche's genealogy of morals. And of course, according to, to Nietzsche, just like with Gerard, Christianity does mark a kind of revolutionary change. Of course, Nietzsche's a little bit harsher on it. Uh, although even even Nietzsche's you know Nietzsche's take on Christianity I've talked about this a lot is actually more complex than people might realize Nietzsche in a lot of ways really seems to center his critique on on Saint Paul and kind of the 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 political development of Christianity in a lot of ways it seems like Nietzsche actually quite respects Jesus um, in some ways you know I've I've argued that Christ is kind of like an Ubermensch figure uh, Christ himself anyway I think Nietzsche's so Nietzsche's critique is not so completely anti-Christian as as people often think. In any event, it, there's certainly a lot of truth to the fact that uh, Nietzsche does definitely say a lot of very negative things about the revolution that Christianity as a political phenomenon. Yeah, and I mean, even his book, The Antichrist, you know, Nietzsche's book, The Antichrist, I mean, what's interesting is that it's actually mistranslated because Christ in German would, would be Christian rather than, so what he's like the book, really, the title actually means the anti-Christian more than the anti-Christ. Um, so that's interesting. And he does in that, you know, precisely in that book, he gives a relatively um, sympathetic and actually quite sort of moving uh, account of of Christ himself. Um, so yeah, I agree. But but yeah, so so Gerard basically says that he is a Nietzschean in reverse. Um, <laughs> In, in one of his interviews, um, he said, I think that's approximately the phrasing, but basically, so Nietzsche agrees with Girard that the Christian passion is a fundamental revolution, right? And he also agrees with Girard that the Bible is radically distinct from mythology because it is... Um, heavily focused on valorizing the figure of the victim, right? That, that the victim of violence is always, um, is always the, the hero in some sense, right, of, in the Bible, right? So it's, it's extremely um, distinct from myth, which, um, you know, which constructs heroes in a very different way, right? Because, they, okay, they can be a kind of victim like Oedipus, but then they also have to be guilty of what they are victimized for, right? And that that, that you know, that there's always that kind of um, necessary component to it. So um, Nietzsche basically, I mean, he's an extremely complex thinker, but, you know, throughout his career, to some extent, he was an advocate of a kind of return to a mythical sensibility, right? That he he understood the need to um, undo this Christian transvaluation, right? Which essentially, if you take something like genealogy of morals, you know, took the hot, those who were in these sort of pagan, you know, myth-based societies were the sort of higher figures. And essentially brought them low and then elevated the lower figures to the highest status, right? That this was, a, you know, in simple terms, the transvaluation. And so Girard basically agrees with this analysis, right? That, um, that the, the violence of myth is essentially a sort of refraction of the, a sort of somewhat, um, disguised refraction of the violent, the historic, the real historical violence against scapegoats and sort of sacrificial victims. And then what the Bible does is sort of turn that on its head by exposing the innocence of the victim of the, the, the various, you know, crimes that they're accused of in order to justify their, um, execution and in order to allow the society to regain, um, unity. And that basically, um, 
what you instead have in the Bible is this this moral revolution by which the victim becomes by the which the victim's innocence is is maintained, right? And that this essentially short circuits the mechanism by which victimization can produce these social outcomes, right? And so what Nietzsche saw and in Girard's reading was that the problem with this is that um, it essentially erodes the basis of societies, right? And it, it, you know, you have Christianity, but then you also have, I mean, you know, for Nietzsche, Christianity leads to nihilism, basically, right? And so his, um, his prescription is that you have to return to some kind of mythic understanding of the world in order to escape nihilism, right? So, you know, for Girard, this is ultimately the kind of, you know, so he basically sees Nietzsche's analysis of the impact of, of the Bible as correct, but he sees his kind of prescription as, I mean, his, his position is that, you know, you can't sort of put the cat back in the bag like that, that once the, the innocence of victims has been revealed, the scapegoat mechanism continues to happen, but it can never have the same efficacy. Um, as it did before. Right. Well, I think also you mentioned that for Nietzsche, things kind of pan out with myth, a kind of return to some type of mythical project. I think also one could say that with Nietzsche, things seem to, things seem to cash out in aesthetics. And, and I think Foucault kind of picks this up, this, this, this idea of an aesthetics of, of existence that, you know, after nihilism runs its course, the, uh, the the path forward for the Ubermensch really is on some level an aesthetic project. It's a matter of having strong will and 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 having some kind of vision of 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 beauty that's not necessarily reducible to something as mundane or bourgeois as as truth or happiness, but some kind of vision that is is compelling, but seems to boil down essentially to some kind of aesthetic dimension. Uh, but what's interesting about Gerard is that. The aesthetic dimension it does isn't really a solution because you 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 will find yourself relapsing into imitation, perhaps is is one way to is one way to kind of put Gerard maybe uh, a step ahead of Nietzsche. You know, I think I think Gerard the Gerardian philosophy definitely should make us somewhat skeptical or bearish on on aesthetics as the liberating front, simply because of these problems of. Of, of of mimesis and violence uh, run so deep. So that's just an interesting thought that kind of came to me listening to. Yeah, right. I I, I think we'll get into this, um, but you know the, the thing to the thing that's important about Girard is that his sensibility is ultimately and particularly in his later writing, apocalyptic. In in a sort of literal sense, <laughs> and yeah, let's talk about that. So. Another book I've been reading, which I notice here is actually one of the assigned readings for week seven in your course. Week seven is on the persistence of scapegoating. But there's this one book called Battling yeah. to the End. That book is yeah. pretty wild. Yeah. <laughs> That's Gerard gets pretty apocalyptic. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about that. It's it's quite fascinating. What's what's your what's your take on that? Right. So I think in his earlier writing, there you know there is this kind of prophetic dim dimension of his writing where. There's this idea that people can't accept the the ultimate, you know, sort of imitatio Christi or, you know, whatever we want to call it, where the only kind of, you know, that um, the only good imitation can, at least in an ethical sense, can be the imitation of Christ. And so in order for us to overcome the, the violence that constantly threatens to consume us, our only path is to... Um, become like Christ. But, you know, so there is a kind of prophetic exhortation towards that in some of his writing. But I think there's also an acknowledgement of its impossibility, right? <laughs> and that in battling to the end, you know, interestingly, the whole discussion is mediated through uh, Clausewitz and his writing on war. And so you basically end up with you know this this seemingly secular guide to apocalypse right because Clausewitz is really a a sort of hard-nosed sort of analyst of what was happening with war in the 19th century 
right? Particularly in the wake, thinking about it in the wake of the Napoleonic Wars. And um, basically the idea, and this really loops back to Deceit, Desire in the novel, which is part of what interests me, because it's this period when these kinds of, um, you know, the, these kinds of um, stabilizing institutions of sort of Christian civilization, you know, which he always saw as, which Gerard always saw as flawed and, and, you know, not truly Christian in many ways, but nevertheless that had a kind of stabilizing effect that could make up for the loss of this kind of sacrificial violence as a stabilizer, um, that, that those were breaking down in the wake of kind of secularism. And so in, in Clausewitz, you see how that plays out in the context of war, which is the escalation to total war, right? Where wars are not just fought by professional soldiers on battlefields, but can increasingly consume the entire society, right? Um, where you have, you have um, civilian volunteer armies fighting under Napoleon, right? So you have this kind of um, idea of an entire society that can be mobilized towards war, right? And that's, that's essentially what brings us into modern you know, 20th century warfare. Clausewitz is kind of the, the theorist of this total war. Um, and so w- w- part of what's interesting here is that you know, it really ties a historical sensibility in with a kind of biblical apocalyptic sensibility. So you have, on one hand, um, a kind of understanding of of apocalypse that comes from the Bible and particularly the revelation of St. John. And, you know, and really, Girard takes literally the idea that the coming of Christ precipitates us towards the end of the world, right? And the reason for this is that it takes away the stabilizing mechanism of sacrifice by discrediting it, right? Um, and so... It's, you know, the argument is essentially that that takes a long time to, for the, you know, it's, it's this kind of corrosive acid that gradually kind of spreads throughout the world and discredits institution after institution. And then these other institutions are built up to try to substitute for that. But because of the kind of critical sensibility that it introduces, um, it, and this is again, the Nietzschean, a very closely related to the Nietzschean understanding of nihilism, right? That, that Christianity brings about nihilism by um, creating this, uh, this sensibility that can undermine the institutions that stabilize society on a kind of moral basis, right? Because they, um, none of them live up to the, um, the moral standards that are introduced, by, introduced to the world by Christ, right? So they all become... Um, discredited and sort of fall into disrepute at some point. And so, you know, so the idea here is that Christianity through its historical effect, right, that can be observed, um, you know, in in a completely empirical way, um, gradually brings about the scenario, precisely the scenario imagined in, you know, the biblical apocalypse, which is the scenario of the end of the world, right, which is... um, you know, and if you read Battling to the End, I mean, obviously it's it's nuclear apocalypse. It's also you know environmental catastrophe, and so on. And so, so the idea here is that you know if we look at our history, what we see, and and you know he's looking at it through Clausewitz's analysis of war, what we see is something that, in many ways, um, simply confirms the apocalyptic visions of the Book of Revelation. Yeah, it's it's fire. I I I get really excited about this. I think it's it's super interesting because I mean one of the things that Gerard talks about is how Christianity is interesting in that it did kind of foresee its own failure in a way. It there's all of this self awareness in the Christian texts that basically predicts people are always going to laugh at this. No, you know, the, the masses are not going to really be able to imitate Christ. This is always going to be rejected. It's always going to be on the, on, on the back foot against, you know, the, the powers that be the, against, you know, the print, the prince of this world. And so there's this kind of built in self-awareness or prescience around this. And so this is one of the reasons why Christianity has this apocalyptic kind of attitude or, or dimension to it, because it, it foresees the necessity of Christianity not being 
workable for many people. It, it foresees that our, our sinful nature is going to persistently reject the necessity of Christianity. And that's where the, the apocalyptic ideas of, you know, the end of the world and the good being separated from the bad and, and, and all, of, all of that apocalyptic model is, is kind of based on that interior kind of Christian self-awareness of that. And so it's just, it's just very fascinating, I think, especially in today's world where with digital technology, everything now is kind of at massive scale, right? So it's like Gerard was already diagnosing the kind of nonlinear d- dynamics of mimesis and violence, the ability for things to escalate. And now we live in this digital context where 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 nonlinearities reign. Everything is about power laws already, even even mundane things. It's like, you know, if you're the best if you're the best, you know, um, like chef on TikTok, you're like miles above second place. You're not like linearly above second place. You know, so power laws reign everywhere, even in mundane things. So the implication, I mean it's hard to resist the the interpretation here that Gerard plus digital technology is kind of pretty literally <laughs> saying that the the world the end of the world is upon us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, I think um, something that I'd love to talk to you about more sometime is you know he was a kind of accelerationist. I think at least in the sense that you define it, right? Which is which is not being pro or anti-acceleration, but simply placing it at the center of how you understand our situation, right? Placing accelerative processes at the center of how you understand our situation. And I mean, I think what you just described was was that, right? But I mean, even if you go back just to the basic framework of how he understands mimetic contagion as a social dynamic, right? It's, I mean, he describes it explicitly in terms of positive feedback, you know, these sort of cybernetics. I mean, a couple of things he wrote, he introduces ideas about positive feedback um, in a cybernetic sense to think about this social dynamic. And there's a there's a really interesting, I mean, somebody I think is probably one of the most underrated sort of public intellectuals is uh, named Jean-Pierre Dupuis. And he was a, a you know, friend of and, and learned a lot from Girard. But he's probably the, the key figure to think about here because he is both heavily engaged with Girard, but also um, has written extensively about cybernetics. Um, so anyway, he has some some interesting, and he really does understand Girard as a sort of cybernetician. Um, oh, cool! So, yeah, I'm looking him up now. Yeah, so yeah he's, he's, he's an engineer and he's, philosopher. That's cool. Yeah, he's he's fascinating. So, in any case. Um, yeah, I think you really and and again, you know, Gerard didn't really write about technology. I mean, he wrote about, you know, interestingly, he wrote about the scapegoat mechanism as the original technology, right? Because it <laughs> it's um, and you know, if you if you think about Peter Thiel's and you know, he he's sort of explicit about this in some of his lectures, but you know, his whole distinction between zero to one and one to two sort of um, innovation, right? The second being purely imitative. Um, so zero to one, you know, zero, the original zero to one innovation is the scapegoat mechanism, right? Because it, it, um, it introduces this structure that, um, reorganizes the social grouping, um, in a, in a fundamental and irreversible way. And so, so anyway, yeah, Girard, um, talks about how, you know, technology, and I, I have a whole spiel about um, the film 2001 and the, the opening sequence of that that is kind of about this, that, you know, if, if you, because that's a, you know, that, that opening sequence with the sort of, you know, proto-hominids on the savanna, I mean, it, it doesn't, it, it's, I mean, it's extremely Girardian, although it, the, the explicit, um, explanation such as it is of the kind of origin of technology is is completely mythical right because the idea is that there are these apes they are in conflict um so in that sense it's kind of the same problem right they're 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 fighting over this watering hole although it's also not clear why they can't just share it because they're also sharing it with other animal species so there's something going on beyond just simple um oh there's not enough to go around right it goes back to this point that like um even with 
you know, even with things that are not sufficiently scarce to provoke conflict, it would seem they still can. So anyway, we have this scenario of these apes in conflict over this watering hole. And then what happens? Well, this weird monolith comes down from the sky, completely mythical scenario, right? And then that plants the idea in one of their heads that um, if they, you know, pick up bones and start using them as weapons, they can overcome their enemies, right? So of course, this is not, you know, I mean, this is exactly the problem that Girard's work tries to explain, or this is exactly the scenario, but but the version that Kubrick gives is completely mythical, right? Um, so w what I'm getting to here is that, you know, that famous sequence is also, it ties the resolution of violence or a violent conflict in an, a proto-human society to the rise of technology, right? Like the, the initial rise of technology. But I think Girard's position would be essentially the opposite, that um, there is a scene of scapegoating in that sequence, but um, it, it occurs after the, techno the first technology has been invented. Girard would flip that on its head and say that you need to have the social mechanism of the scapegoat mechanism developed, and then that is what enables um, technological development to occur. Wow. Okay. Awesome. That's fire, man. This was, this was fantastic, Jeff. Thank you so much for coming on and giving us this tour yep. de force. This was a Absolutely. excellent rapid fire tour through all the main themes that you're going over in the course. You do seven weeks of lectures and we basically went through point by point, each one of the key themes in each of those seven weeks of lectures. So this was awesome. We covered a ton of ground. I think people are going to find this very illuminating and, and exciting. So thank you for this. And for people out there listening or watching, definitely go uh, check out Jeff's writings at outsidertheory.com. He's got a great blog and newsletter combo there. Uh, so go go check out his other writings. And podcast, all about actually. What's and that? podcast too. Podcast as well. It's a it's a yep. it's a whole it's a whole uh, burgeoning little media platform yep. that uh, Jeff is building around outsidertheory.com. It's good stuff. You'll find more of his work on Gerard, but also a very interesting you know perspective Jeff has on a variety of other kind of 20th century continental thinkers, especially how they relate to you know contemporary digital technology. So Jeff's got an excellent uh, kind of set of themes that he's working on over at outsidertheory.com. So go check that out and sign up subscribe to the newsletter and yeah, subscribe to the podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, if you're particularly interested in Gerard and you enjoyed this podcast, definitely go and grab the study guide that we made at gerardcourse.com. Uh, Jeff's doing a whole course on Gerard. And so you can learn more about that at gerardcourse.com. But uh, we made a, a, a beautiful free little study guide. So even if you're not interested in a full length course, even if you don't need that, but maybe you just want to kind of catch up on Gerard or maybe you've never read Gerard, but you want to get into it, or maybe you have read some Gerard, but you're curious about what are the, the key works that maybe you haven't read yet, which you should just go and grab that free syllabus. Cause uh, we, Jeff put a lot of effort into curating uh, a, a really nice logical sequence of some of the key readings and the order that you should read them in. And uh, we put that into a nice little PDF for you uh, totally for free. So just go download that if you're interested in studying Gerard either on your own or you're potentially interested in learning more about the course. Either way, it's at gerardcourse.com. And uh, I think that's about it, Jeff. I'll let you go. I'm sure you have other things to do today. I just want to thank you so much for coming on. Glad to have you on uh, the Other Life podcast. And just thank you. This was awesome. Yeah, thank you. It's All right, man. Fun. I'll talk to you later.